one of the greatest minds of the last generation was probably a man by the name of Rabbi Adin Steinzeltz. Contemporary Jewish scholar, he passed away almost two years now, in August of 2020. A very deep, original thinker, prolific author, an incredible, incredible man. And what was unique, perhaps, about him was that he was also a very staunch chassid of the Rebbe, a very dedicated follower of Chabad. He wrote a book called My Rebbe, and uh, he had these very, very beautiful, almost poetic ways of describing things, especially about the Rebbe. And I read something from him that really sets the stage for this chapter tonight that we're learning, chapter seven of book two, the longest chapter in all of the Tanya. So out of all the books, truth is in book four, there's a couple of letters that are longer, but those are not chapters, those are letters. Out of all the parts of Tanya that have chapters, this is the longest chapter. So he wrote something about the Rebbe that I think sets the stage for this. And he said, many people say that the greatness of the Rebbe was that in the end of the day, he was hidden. He was private. As much as we knew about him, we never knew anything. That's how people like to bring out the Rebbe's greatness. He came out to the public and da-da-da-da, but nobody knew what happened when he went home or how he behaved as a private individual. Even his early years are shrouded in mystery. He was a nister, as they call it, a hidden man. But he said, the way I see it, it's the opposite. The Rebbe was the most public Jewish leader in all of Jewish history. There was nobody who was so accessible since Moshe Rabbeinu as the Rebbe. And the greatness was that since nothing the Rebbe did was for anyone else, everything was for himself and his relationship with God, even in public, he wasn't noticed. Everybody gets noticed because we're looking to be noticed. But if you're truly egoless, you can hide in plain sight. You can be there and nobody will take note because you're not looking to be taken note of. You're wholly focused on what it is that your mission is. And you see this when the Rebbe Davins, you know, 1992, just before the Rebbe stroke, they led in a crew. They were going to make a documentary about the Rebbe. It was a whole project. It didn't come to fruition, but they allowed professional TV crews to come into 770. And they got the closest that anybody was, was allowed to get close to the Rebbe, literally in his face, you know, while he was davening. And uh, you watch these videos, and you would think, like, the Rebbe would turn to the camera maybe once. Never. He davened as if nobody was there, as if everybody was there. It makes no difference. The Rebbe was fully in relationship, aligned with God. And so even in the most revealed of circumstances, you're completely unseen. That's true greatness. <clears throat> book two of the Tanya, very different than book one. Book one spoke a lot more to the human psyche, to the human struggle. Book two of the Tanya is a study of God, a study of what is, a study of the fabric of reality. But the name of book two is Shar Hayichud Baha'emunah, the gateway to faith, to unity and faith which means that although we study about God, 
it's not in the context of an abstract academic project to understand God. Unity, the word unity means, by definition, the unity between God and creation. The unity between God and His handiwork. So whatever we study about Hashem in this book needs to be taken in the context of His relationship with us. Whatever ideas we discover about Hashem, we always need to ask ourselves, how does that translate into Hashem vis-a-vis the universe? To that end, book two of the Tanya is built very systematically, revealing layer by layer, deeper and deeper perspectives on the unity of God and creation. Back in chapter one, we started with the concept of God being the constant creator. People say Hashem created the world, created his past tense. Hashem is creating the world at every single moment. Those words that he uttered back in those days of Genesis are being uttered at every single second, constantly and perpetually. And maybe more importantly, customized and personal. Each individual creation is getting vivified and animated by a specific set of godly divine letters. Nothing is being supervised or charged from far. Everything is intimately intertwined with the infinite. It has to do with the fact that it's yesh me'ayim, since creation is ex nihilo, so it requires consistent maintenance as we discussed at length in earlier weeks. But the result of understanding that Hashem is constantly creating the world is that if we could see the truth, we would see that we're nothing outside the source, outside these animating letters. If our eyes could see, Al-Tarebbe said, if we didn't have fleshy eyes, we would see that there is nothing outside of the spiritual force activating the universe. Where does our ego come in? We don't live in that reality. We see ourselves, we have self-perception. We see ourselves as independent egotistical beings. So that is Tzimtzum's fault. Tzimtzum is the mechanism where God conceals and creates at the same time. It's a godly capacity that nobody can understand. How you can both be the creator, and not just the creator, but the constant creator, so tied up in your creation, and yet there should be no trace of you. It's the greatness of the Tzimtzum. It created, literally created a dark vacuum where Hashem both is and is not. Nevertheless, and this was the topic of last week's chapter, chapter 6, we believe that Hashem hu ha'elokim, which literally means God is God, but Kabbalistically it means Hashem is the tetragrammaton, yud ke vav ke, that's the name for God's creative force. Elokim is the name for God's concealing force. The creative force and the concealing force are one and the same. The whole of Tzimtzum's reality, the whole of our perspective is our perspective alone. But if we could look at it from God's perspective, we would see that every tool he uses in relationship with his creation is in perfect harmony. Because the things that Hashem uses in relationship with his world are not tools, they're expressions of him. They come from within him. Since they emanate from him, they are in harmony with each other. As long as you're using tools that are outside of you, there's always an imperfection. There's always a friction. But if you have brought forth the different sorts of expressions, they themselves harmonize with each other. And so the power to create, to reveal, what we call chesed, or the power to conceal and hold back and hide, or gvura, 
is one and the same. And that amounts to a deeper unity, a deeper truth, where not just we acknowledge the fact that we're within God's letters, we're within our source, but Tzimtzum distorts it, even living within the Tzimtzum reality, we can acknowledge that were we to see it from the other side, it's all one. The classic example to illustrate it, which is not brought in the Tanya, but in later discourses, is when you have a teacher who needs to distill an idea for his crowd. Every time you teach, the way the idea processes in your own brain is always on a higher, more refined level than it's going to be to your audience. That's the nature of teaching. You can only communicate things on a lower level than you understand it yourself. So many times, what a teacher does in teaching, and especially with kids, I remember when I taught in school, it was, you had to always come up with these things, is metaphors. You always need metaphor to simplify concepts. The audience that hears the metaphor could very easily get lost in the metaphor. It's very easy to walk away from a speech and say, what did the rabbi say? Oh, a nice story. But the story was a key to an idea. The thing is, when you're learning from the bottom up, you see the metaphor, and you have to translate the metaphor into the idea. But if you can crawl into the teacher's mind, he sees the metaphor merely as a vehicle to transmit his idea. For him, the metaphor is not a piece of clothing. It is an additional layer of the idea. For the person listening, the metaphor becomes almost a blockage or an interruption. It could even become a distraction if you don't take it right. So post-symptom reality is like post-metaphor reality. That's where, that's where we live. We live on the other side. But if we could see it from Hashem's perspective, we would understand that it's all part and parcel of the same package. And so what we end up with, essentially, at the beginning of chapter 7, which is where we start tonight, is two versions of the unity of God. What I'll call the truth and the fact. The truth is that nothing is outside of God. We're all in the letters, we're all subsumed in the source, we're all an extension of Hashem's identity. But the fact is that we're living in a world post-Simtsum, where we have to work backwards and know and believe that it's all one, but it isn't the day-to-day life that we experience. And the question that opens chapter 7 is why? Why did Hashem create this lower level of unity where we have to work backwards? And essentially, the Altar Rebbe conflates it with the question of why did God create the world? Because it really is the same question. Why did God create the world means why did God create a space which is worldly, not God-centered, hidden, and then you have to come to appreciate God from within. Now, there are many reasons given to why God created the world. It's a massive discussion. But in this chapter, the Alter Rebbe offers one insight. And he said it's based on a Zohar that says, Ana emloch. Hashem had a desire to be a king. He wanted to be a king over subjects. There are many types of relationships in life. You could be a father-son, parent-child. You could have a teacher-student, co-workers, friends. Many ways that two people can relate. Then there's a king and a subject. And what's unique about a king and a subject relationship, different to any other relationship, is that it begins with distance. Every other relationship begins with closeness. The idea of a king-subject relationship presumes king is above, you are below. You're lower. You have to be submissive to authority because the king exercises this incredible amount of power. Until Hashem created the world, he only had 
relationships of closeness. Expressions of himself, angels close to himself, souls close to themselves, they're called God's sons. What Hashem wanted was beings that are emphatically distant from him. He wanted to have the king-subject relationship. Not so much because of what that would give him, because if you compare what a son offers to a father and a subject offers to a king, the closeness of a son to a father is so much more qualitatively. But because of the extraordinary quality of a crude being giving at all. Sometimes the element of surprise is greater than the quantity of the gift. We've all gotten gifts in our lives. Bigger gifts, smaller gifts. Sometimes it's the size of the gift that matters. But sometimes it's the way it's done. The chak. I didn't see that coming. Wow. That gesture makes it all that greater. The example that the Alter Rebbe gives in other discourses is if you had a king who was very mad at one of his ministers, he wanted to get an audience, and so what he did was he brought in a parrot to say, I'm sorry. He taught a parrot to say, I'm sorry, and he put it into the king's chamber, and then the parrot starts talking, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The minister didn't give anything qualitative to the king, but he gave an element of surprise called chidush. Unique novel, a novel concept can sometimes inspire something deeper than the regular big stuff. So what Hashem gets, so to speak, from being in a relationship as a king is not so much what we're able to give him, but that we give him at all. It's very consistent with the way Hasidus views the purpose of creation in general, which is dirabe tachtonim. It's all about making the home for God in this physical world. A home in this physical world doesn't compare to a home in the spiritual world. The spiritual world is so much, be- so much more beautiful. But the fact that there's a home in this world is extraordinary because it's a chap. It doesn't make sense. And yet we do it. That's a chidush. That's a novelty. And that's why Hashem wants it. And so what, Hashem, so what the Alter Rebbe says essentially is the reason why Hashem made this lower level of the reality is because it serves that purpose of Him having that further relationship. The Alter Rebbe puts it into a bit of a Kabbalistic form. We talked last week about God's many names. Halakhically, there are seven names. Kabbalah talks about ten names. Hashem has names. Names are not definitions of His essence. Names are definitions of different parts of His expression. And so the part of God that expresses itself in wanting a distant relationship is the name Adonai. Or in Hasidus you say Adnai because you don't want to pronounce it properly. Like you say Elohim, so you say Adnai. But it refers to that name. That name literally means master of the world. Adon, Adon Olam, master of the world. If you ask somebody, master of the world, which is the key word in that sentence? <laughs> Many people will say master. Right? The operative word is master. Hashem is the master of the world. But the Alter Rebbe says, counterintuitively, the key word is world. This is the expression where God says, I want to have a world that I can be the master over. I have so many other realities where we're intertwined. We're one and the same. But I want to have a world that's distant. The word olam in Hebrew shares the same root as helen, hiddenness. That's the reality I want to create so that I can be a master. Truth is important. And the truth is that everything is a continuum of God's identity. But fact is also equally important because it serves another element of what Hashem wants from creation. And this explains a Zohar, 
that the Alter Rebbe brought in the title of book two. Just like in book one, there was a title page where the Alter Rebbe says this book is based on the verse Kikarov, Torah is close to you and relevant. Book two begins with a Zohar. He says this purpose of book two is to explain what the Zohar says that Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, is the higher unity of God. Baruch Shem Kavod Machotol Olam Va'ed is the lower unity of God. That's the Zohar. There's two unities, higher unity and lower unity. One is expressed in the verse Shema Yisrael, and the other is expressed in the next passage that we say afterwards, Baruch Shem. What, what does this mean, higher unity, lower unity? So the Alter Rebbe says, Shema Yisrael literally means pay attention, pay heed, Jew. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. That God is one in absolute perfect oneness. That's a reference to the higher level of unity, what we call the truth of existence. Baruch Shem Kavod Machotol Olam Va'ed. If you look at the English sitter, it means blessed be the name of the glory of his kingship forever and ever. It's like a cryptic statement. Hasidus translates that as Baruch. In Hebrew, the word Baruch also means bring down. Baruch, bring down. Shem Kavod Malchuto. The name of the glory of his kingship. Name, glory, and kingship are all things that require an other being to exist. Why do we have names? So that you can communicate with me. Essentially, I don't need a name. I have a name so that if I need you to talk to me, you can call me by name. Glory, kavod, is also a reference to something outside. The glory of somebody is only perceived by others. And the same thing with kingship. Like I said before, kingdom requires another. So we're going to bring down essentially, God's energy. Chassidus says it's a he'ara de he'ara de he'ara. It's a diminishment of a diminishment of a diminishment. A three times reduction of godly energy. Le'olam, to the world. Va'ed literally means forever, but if you have some Kabbalah knowledge of how Kabbalistic letters can get interchanged, va'ed is another version of the word echad. If you change aleph for a vav, and a chet for a ayin, there's different rules, how it works. So va'ed means a lower unity. In English, baruch shem va'ed means let's bring down godliness to this world so we can relate to it. God is one in his ultimate truth, beyond and transcendent of any way that we can theorize about it. Baruch shem va'ed is relatable godliness approachable godliness, reachable godliness. Let's bring it down so we can experience the unity that we can experience. In other words, says the Alter Rebbe, what the Zohar is communicating to us is that Hashem Echad, while it's the truth, is meaningless to us. It's the ultimate, but it doesn't have a relatability. What we need to do is find the unity in our version of reality. And then that can be a stepping stone to getting to the ultimate. Sadiqim have the opposite struggle. There's a fascinating story of uh, Rabbi Yisrael of Rujin, the Rujina Rebbe. He was an incredible, incredible holy man. The Baal Shem Tov said before he passed, they asked him, when are you going to come back, Rebbe? He said, I'm going to come back in 50 years. The Bashantov passed away in 1760. 37 years later, Rabbi Yisrael of Rujin was born, and 13 years after that was his bar mitzvah, and they said 50 years 
he was a reincarnation of the Baal Shem Tov. An incredibly holy man. Baal Shem Tov passed away in 1760. Baal Shem Tov, okay. Who was the one that had the farmers for 50 years? The Ruzhin Rebbe. It's called Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin. Not from the Chabad dynasty, but he's another Hasidic dynasty. It's a whole long story, but the point is he once, as a kid, met with the Alter Rebbe. I think he was five years old or six years old, and he was traveling, and he crossed paths with the Alter Rebbe. And he told the Alter Rebbe, I have a question. How could it be that we say in Shema, Shema Yisrael Hashem Olokeinu Hashem Echad, and then we follow that up with the Ahavta, with loving God? How could it be that you go from Hashem's oneness to love? The Alter Rebbe didn't miss a beat. He answered, that's why we say Baruch Shem in between. And the wagons parted, and the Alter Rebbe turned to his students and he said, you don't even begin to understand the question that this child asked. That's the way the story is written down, handed down from Rebbe to Rebbe. Now, the meaning of the story, I think, is based on what I mentioned before. Hashem Echad is God's ultimate unity. God's ultimate unity precludes ego of any kind. Love is predicated on ego. The desire to connect with somebody else is predicated on self-centricity. Not in a bad way, but it begins with self. So what this child was asking the Alter Rebbe is, once I've reached the level of Hashem Echad, how do I then say to love? How do I then say that that brings me to a love? In fact, that brings me to complete and utter self-abnegation. No love. So the Alter Rebbe said, that's why we say Baruch Shem in between. Baruch Shem is you have to step away from the higher realm of reality and allow yourself to take in a reality where God is just the master. And from that point of view, you can love. That's the tzaddik struggle. Right? He, he's wondering how we get from Hashem Echad to Ve'ahavta. We're wondering how we even get to Hashem Echad. We, we, don't, even, we don't even begin to fathom that truth. But that lower unity, that Baruch Shem Kvon Ed is necessary for everybody. It's necessary for the tzaddik because it brings him down. And it's necessary for us because it brings us up. It's the starting point where we can appreciate God's unity to one level and then be able to ascend from there. The segue point from this is that there's something deeper. Till now, it could come out that truth and fact are contradictory. Truth is the way the Torah sees God's unity, and fact is the way we see God's unity. Unfortunately for us, we're created physical, egotistical beings. That's the way we have to operate. But the fact of the matter is, both unities are discussed in Torah. If Torah discusses something, it has to be true on all levels. So the Alter Rebbe says, these two levels of unity have to converge. They're not just dependent on where you live. If you live on the top floor of the house, you have a higher level of consciousness. If you're on the bottom floor of the house, you have a lower level of consciousness. They're both necessary. And the way he explains this is with a Kabbalistic term called shiluv. If anybody's seen a Sephardic sitter, you'll notice many times um, when the name of God appears, 
it'll have this long series of letters. A yud, and an aleph, and a hey, and a dalid, like ya adonai, looks like a strange word. And what it is, is actually a conflation of the two names of yudke vavke and adnai. And it just goes one letter, one letter, one letter, one letter. So yud of tetragrammaton, and then aleph of adonai. Then they got the hey of yudke vavke, and then the dalid. It's called shiluv, interlinking or, or, or interconnection. So the Sephardic Kabbalists have a field day. Whenever the blessings say it, they have all kinds of intents and everything, but it has a very deep meaning. Kabbalistically, what it means is it's not mutually exclusive where if you're on the lower level, you say, I exist and I submit to God. And if you're on the higher level, you say, I don't exist. It's not all or nothing. It's a convergence. It's where you say, I exist and my identity is God. The best of both. You have, I exist and I submit to God. You have, I don't exist. But then in the middle you have, I exist and my identity is God. Shiluv, Havaya Ba'adnai, the Alter Rebbe calls it. You interlink Havaya into Adnai or you do it the opposite way. You interlink Adnai into Havaya. Depends how you set up the letters. But it basically means that one is a manifestation of the other. The finity wraps itself into the infinity, and the infinity manifests itself in the finity. You have to have both. You have to let the transcendence flow into your limitation, and you have to allow your humanness to become part of the service of the sublime. I guess the philosophical way to say this would be, it's not in the Tanya, but I'm just going to say it this way. You know, it says in the Talmud that the Aron, Kodesh, the Holy Ark, was unique in that it didn't take up any space. That means if you literally walked in with a ruler, we know the dimensions of how big the Holy of Holies was, and we know the dimensions of how big the Aron was. The, the room was 20 cubits long. So you took a tape measure, went from one end to the next, 20 cubits long. But then if you measured from one wall to the edge of the Aron, and from the edge of the Aron to the other wall, it was 10 on each side. A mathematical impossibility. And the sages say, Makom ha'aron min hamidah. The place of the Aron was not part of the space. So obviously it's incomprehensible. But the way that Hasidus gives it some form of understanding is it was contained within space, but not limited by it. Within space, but not limited by it. Because it was accessing a realm that was beyond space. Another place we saw this was on Yom Kippur. When the Jews came to the Holy Temple, the Kohen Gadol would say God's name. So it says that in the actual moments of the service, the Jews were like squashed sardines. The moment God would say, the Kohen Gadol would say God's name and everyone had to bow and prostrate, everybody had room to prostrate fully. How does that work? So the previous Rebbe explains in a discourse that by saying God's ineffable name, the Kohen Gadol raised the Jewish people to a state where they were within space, but not limited by it. What makes space mutually exclusive, that if I'm sitting in the chair, you can't sit in the chair, is because we're confined by space. But if we weren't confined by space, we could be within it and tolerate everything else at the same time.
So to say that God is either or, it's either I exist and God's a master or I don't exist, is to say that we're operating within the confines of space. But if we can go deeper and say, I both exist and my identity is God, I can converge both unities, that means I can be within and without at the same time. It's very deep. Oh, the king part comes in because it's the stepping stone. It's the beginning of your relationship when you see God as the king. Then you ascend and you use that in his service to reach a higher perspective. Judaism demands consistent growth and consistent paradigm shifts. It's part of the paradox of being Jewish. Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. Avinu Malkeinu. God should be our father and our king at once. Live the paradox. Okay. But we have to start from being the king. That's where we start from. Unlike anything else that's outside of this realm, we begin with that detached sense. In fact, if we didn't begin with that, it would be detrimental. I remember hearing an incredible story about the Alter Rebbe's uh, chassid, whose name was Rebbe Shmuel Munkis. This was a fascinating personality. He was incredibly serious and incredibly comedic at the same time. He's known for many of his antics and jokes and he always teach lessons through them. But he was an incredibly, incredibly great, great tzaddik. And um, in his city, there was a group of black magicians who were harnessing the forces of impurity to damage Jews in the city. And uh, it basically came to a point where it was too much. And Rabbi Shmuel Munkis felt he had to intervene. So I don't remember exactly how it happened, but there was a challenge presented, kind of like a a face-off between Rabbi Shmuel Munkis and these magicians. And the idea was each one would have to drink a drink prepared by the other and uh, whoever stayed alive wins. <laughs> Basically, it's a pretty tough showdown. That's a new kind of sudden death. New kind of sudden death, exactly. So, so they come together on the appointed time. And these people were, were no jokes. These were real witch, witches. The power of witchcraft was real with them. They took a cup of water and they began to recite incantations over it and the water began to change color and began to change texture and foaming up and it began to smell of death, like literally incredibly, incredibly harsh. And they said all their stuff and they gave it to Rabbi Shmuel Munkas and they said, okay, drink it. Shmuel took the cup. He said, Baruch Hashem and he drank it. And nothing happened. And he poured them a cup of alcohol. And he said, deal's on. Now you drink. They were so scared. And uh, anyway, they drank it. And two days later, they died. And what? Two days later, they died. Two days. Yeah. The next time Rabbi Shmuel came to the Alter Rebbe, <coughs> Alter Rebbe said, very bad move you did. 
if not for the fact that I answered Amen to your blessing, you would have died. Al-Tarebbe was miles and miles away, understand? Al-Tarebbe said, if I wouldn't have answered Amen to your blessing, the whole thing would have gone kaput. And the meaning of the story was that only a tzaddik operates on the level of reality where the truth of godliness dictates everything. A chassid, who's a regular soul and works on himself, doesn't go straight for that truth. If you say it and you don't live it, it could have an adverse effect. The Alter Rebbe had to step in and answer Amen. In other words, justify that truth so that Rabbi Shmuel blessing could have the effect that it needed to have. But otherwise, he was saying, you got to stay in your zone. You can't climb out of zones to where a place where you're not holding. So that's why we start with the king. And we work our way up. We have to know where we're at. But at any rate, we have two versions of unity. They're both equally important and they both have to come together. And the Alter Rebbe basically says what amounts to now a third degree of God's unity, the deepest, which he finds in a verse. And the prophet Malachi says, Ani Hashem lo shaniti. I am God and I never changed. Which literally means nothing changes God. Pre-creation, post-creation, no change. In fact, in the morning prayers, we say, Atahu olam. You are the same one before the world was created. Atahu olam. You are the same one after the world was created. The fact that the world came into existence brings no change at all. That's an incredibly radical statement to say. Nothing changes God. The Alter Rebbe illustrates it with perhaps one of the most famous pieces of Rambam, Maimonides, which is very interesting because Rambam was a philosopher and here he gets very Kabbalistic. One of the big questions that theologians struggled with in the study of God is how do we resolve God with his awareness? Is God aware of what's happening in this world? You know, one of the tenets of God's being is that he's perfect. Perfect means he's made up of no parts, there's nothing cumulative about him, and that he undergoes no change. Our world is a very dynamic reality. It's constantly in flux, constantly in change. Simply being aware of change changes you. Right, that principle of if you're influencing or touching, you must be influenced or touched. You can't have an effect outside of yourself without being affected. So if God knows what's going on in the world, that means he's aware of consistent change, he must be changing. So how do we resolve God's knowledge with God's perfection? So Aristotle famously and the philosophers that followed him said, God is not aware of what's happening in this planet. He invested himself in creation, but then he went hands off. It could be it ties in with their other opinion that God in general isn't a creator, he's just an organizer of primordial matter. So it didn't require intimate relationship. God's hands off. Notice that it's very convenient. Right? If God doesn't know what's happening in the planets, we can do whatever we want. But it's a, big, it's a big conundrum. And the Rambam addressed this question in his work, and he reaches the exact opposite conclusion. 
And he says what amounts to be one of the most mysterious and profound ideas about God. He says, God does not process knowledge like we process knowledge. Everything we know begins outside of us and we acquire it. God, because he's the source of everything, knows everything from within himself. With the knowledge of himself, he knows everything outside of him. Because the world essentially is him, it can never change him. The world wasn't just created by God, the world comes from God. And if it comes from God, it always is God. Hence, knowledge and perfection are no contradiction. So based on this Rambam, that the world is part and parcel of God, says the Alter Rebbe, this brings us to the ultimate understanding of the unity of God. Not a higher unity, not a lower unity. The convergence of both. Because we come from Him and constantly exist within Him, we can say both, I exist and my identity is God. It's the pinnacle of Achdut Hashem. It's the ultimate of God's unity. The ultimate version of Achdut. We don't abnegate either side. They both coexist in tandem. Because God's singularity dictates every element of existence, including that which is perceived to exist. And this brings us to probably the most controversial 10 lines in all of the Tanya. In fact, for the first 100 years of the Tanya's printing, it was not printed in the Tanya. The second half of chapter 7 was not printed in Tanya's, only in 1900 when the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, made exhaustive addendums and corrections to the Tanya. He said, now enough time has elapsed, we can print this part of the chapter. It actually gets to the core of one of the main differences between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. You know, at the time, the beginning of the Bashemtov's leadership and the Alter Rebbe's leadership, when the opposition was at its height, there was political opposition, but there was also ideological opposition, like actual belief system, values opposition. And one of them was this topic. The Hebrew word for it is tzimtzum kipshuto or tzimtzum lo kipshuto. Is the tzimtzum, the concept of God vacating a space where the world could perceive itself as an identity, is that literal or non-literal? See, let me keep it short. Kabbalah, like every part of Torah, evolved over time. But it didn't evolve because humans were contributing. It evolved because God was revealing more parts of Kabbalah to the world. One of the new ideas that the Arizal introduced into Kabbalah was the idea of Tzimtzum. We talk about it in Tanya as if it's free-for-all. But it wasn't, if you look in the Zohar, you won't find that terminology. You first find it in the Arizal's writings, that to create a world required God to make a space a space where he vacated his presence because God's presence and world clash. God's presence precludes the existence of a world. So Hashem had to make a chalalu makom panui, it's called an empty space into which the world, so to speak, could find existence. In all the Arizal's primary works, that's the first passage in every one of his books. Silek, oro hagadol al-atzad, Hashem moved his great light to the side and allowed for the world to exist. 
after the Arizal's passing, the Arizal passed away at 36, very young man. People began to debate and understand his writings. He didn't actually write anything in his own lifetime. His mind worked too fast. He couldn't limit himself to write. His students wrote. He, um, he would sweat just to teach, just to say over. He would begin to go into visible sweat. So his students wrote it down, Rebbechaim Vital and others. And um, anyway, a, a very important question emerged about this, the nature of this tzimtzum. Is it literal or non-literal? Is it God vacated the space or God just hid himself within the space? So this is way pre-Hasidic misnagdik. This is early argument. One said it's literal, one said it's not literal. But it came to a head with the Hasidim and the misnagdim. Those that opposed Hasidus said that Tzimtzum is literal. Or to use the words of the Vilna Gaon in one of his famous writings, God does not reside in an area of filth. It's a violation of God's honor. Since this world is full of klipa, negativity, evil, it's all in denial and opposition to God, God wouldn't be present here. How does he create everything? How does he supervise everything? From far. But nothing is inherently godly in this world. No such thing. And the Hasidim said, the opposite is true. No way. And they have passages in the Zohar to prove it. Late Atar Panui Minei, there's no place empty of him. The Torah says, Hashemayim v'ha'aretz animalei, I fill the heavens and the earth. God is for sure in here. God is as much in the Klippa as he is in the Kedusha. And you have to understand how, how polar this was. It's not just like I have an opinion and you have another opinion. I have an opinion to the exclusion of your opinion to the point that your opinion is heretical. In other words, if you could imagine the Chassid and the Misnagid meeting in those days. So the Misnagid says to the Chassid, is God in the church? The Chassid would say, of course. God is in the church as much as he is in the Beit HaMikdash. The Misnagid tells him, you're a heretic. And so the Chassid says, okay, so what do you say? Is God in the church? He says, no way God's in the church. He says, you kidding? God's not in a place in this world? You're a heretic. This, it was a huge, huge debate. And it really gets to the core of how you understand God's relationship with the world. So the Alter Rebbe in the second half of chapter 7, he says, based on our discussion, we can defend the Hasidic position of Tzimtzum Lo Kipshuto. Tzimtzum is non-literal. The others that say Tzimtzum is Kipshuto, the Alter Rebbe literally calls them mistaken. They made a mistake in their examination of the Arizal's writings. First of all, the Alter Rebbe says the basic idea of vacating a space is impossible to say about God. You can't talk about God in spatial terms because he's beyond space. So that idea makes no sense. Plus, you have the passages in the Zohar and the Torah that dictate God being everywhere. But the Alter Rebbe says more fundamentally is based on the Rambam that I mentioned before that God knows everything from within himself. You see, these people weren't like the heretics of chapter 2. If you remember those guys, they didn't even believe in creation ex nihilo. These were Jews. These were Talmidei Chachamim. They examined the Arizal's writings and they came to the conclusion out of the honor of God that God cannot be in this world. The author says, but, but you have to agree that Hashem supervises everything. You have to agree that God is aware of all the dynamic change taking place in the world. Dynamic change is a contradiction to God's perfection. You have to then believe in the Rambam where the Rambam says that God knows everything from within himself. So if God knows everything from within himself, so the world is him. So there can't be a literal tzimtzum. Evacuation in a literal sense is impossible. 
It has to be that in the end, everything is a fusion. Everything is one. As the Rebbe once explained it, it really gets to the, to, to the difference of how you view the world. Whether you view the world as a godless place, where we have to bring in godliness, or an inherently beautiful, divine, infinite place, where we have to just bring it forth. And that's the beauty of Hasidus. The Rebbe would even speak in 1980 that the Vilna Gaon didn't, didn't mean what he said. Even the ones that said it's literal, he also meant it non-literally. No, literal, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying literal evacuation. Anyway, it's a whole, it's a whole sugya. But the point is that essentially this is the highest level of godly unity where the whole reality of reality is simply a point of view. But in fact, we exist and our existence is one and the same with God. The whole tzimtzum is non-literal. And I have to share one thing, and this I'm going to close it with. A discourse from the Alter Rebbe, not in Tanya, but it's uniquely Alter Rebbe. He says, the whole competition of God's light and the world not being able to coincide is only as far as God's expression is concerned, the or ein sof. But as far as God's essence, says the Alter Rebbe, Adarabba, the famous words, Adarabba, to the contrary, Hamoir Hubis Galus. The luminary is revealed. God's light is in contradistinction to the existence of the world, but God's essence is right here in plain sight. And he illustrates it by saying, you know, one of the basic ideas of ideas is that the more abstract something gets, the narrower its audience. Right, one plus one equals two is the property of first graders. E equals MC square is for a much more narrow audience. Third graders. <laughs> the more abstract something gets, the less people are expected to know about it. So how come God, the most abstract of all things, is everybody's business? Everybody has an opinion about God. Everybody has something to say. How it works, is it true, is it not true, is he there, not there? How does it come to be that every single person has something to say about Hashem? Says the Alter Rebbe, because he's in the core of every single being. The essence of God is within every reality. And so that even though our physical senses might push him away, if you ask your eyes, do you see God? No. Can you smell him? No. Can you taste him? No. Hear him? No. But he's there. He's there. And because he's there, everybody is aware of him. So God's light, reachable, accessible godliness, yeah, that might have been vacated. And even that in a non-literal sense. But God's essence is right there. Like Rabbi Steinzelt said about the Rebbe, he's in public, but because he's totally egoless, he can hide in plain sight. And so the ultimate level of Hashem's achdus becomes this idea of the world and Hashem being totally one to the extent that our existence is the identity of God and God's essence is present right here. Chaim. Okay. Oh,